But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Hey, this is Fig from somewhere in Utah. Welcome to episode six. Joined by my cohort in crime, Repeat. Yeah, repeat here. Yeah, episode six. We're trucking right along uh, somewhere in Utah. I hope I hope you know where in Utah there, Fig. Uh, greetings from Pensacola, Florida. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in Kanab, Kanab, Utah. Dark yeah. skies RV park. Nice. And it is going to be dark because there's no lights out here. That's a beautiful thing. Hey, also a beautiful thing. We've got joined this week by, uh, by Chaz. Uh, retired airline pilot, uh, former Navy pilot, S3 Vikings. We didn't even get to the Vikings. Uh, this was a long show. Uh, it, it, so it's now two shows. Uh, we did about 95, hundred minutes with, uh, Chaz. Uh, I'm going to break this one off at about uh, 50 minute mark. So we'll hear some really cool things. Uh, one of his adventures is a, uh, as a child, uh, he grew up on a farm in Indiana and his dad was an engineer, uh, on the railway. And it just so happened that the tracks on his dad's route went right through their back pasture. His dad would slow down and let him get aboard and operate a locomotive as a kid. And they'd go all the way to St. Louis. And then he had a friend who was a, uh, major league baseball coach. So he got to sit on the bench, uh, of a major league baseball team during the games. I mean, every kid gets to do that, right? Drive locomotives and and sit on yeah yeah no no not no? so much <laughs> no, no you didn't get to do that i i didn't get to do that not even once and Man. it was a great story yeah i i especially liked the part where the first time he saw the mountains was when he was in flight school yeah that was that's pretty wild when you think about it. i mean you know you kind of take things for granted in life that you see and but yeah as a farm boy in indiana he didn't have many mountains uh, you got to see him up close and personal, but not for very long, right? <laughs> yes, he did. The mountains were going by pretty quick. <laughs> oh, man. And then he also yeah. uh, regaled us with a uh, story about uh, one of his early flights uh, in, in a Cessna 150. And during the weather, and the weather weather won, and they did a forced landing in an apple orchard, and it sounded like the beginning of a dirty joke. Um <laughs> another great story yeah another great story so good stuff there's a little tragedy in one of his stories it's kind of an eye-opener um it's it's not for the faint of heart no indeed indeed it is and i i think i could be wrong i think that'll be in the second half i look forward to having him back because he's got a lot more to talk about Uh, he really does i've known him for 15 years now and i am always amazed and often him doubling over in laughter at some of the stories uh, he, he has. And he, in fact, he told me one after we got offline and I'm like, Oh, you have got to tell this. It, it <laughs> will he tell it? He will, he will, but it, it, it has to do awesome. with um, having someone at the controls who was not current qualified or even a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> Navy jet. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Okay, I got to hear that story. Yeah, I got to hear it. So, but it it ended well, obviously, or he wouldn't be here to tell us. So, anyway, well, look. With that, we'll go no further uh, in boring you here, just the two of us. But we'll move into Chaz here, and 
the first half of his interview is going to be right here. And then next week we'll get into the second half. So sit back, buckle up, enjoy, enjoy the flight, if you will. And I'll chat with you soon, Fig. Take care and enjoy your vacation. Thanks, repeat. You bet. So long. All right, buddy. So there I was. That's how every great aviation story starts. Hey, this is Fig with my co-host, Repeat. Yeah, it's Repeat here from New Hampshire. Good day, everybody. Uh, we have a special guest with us today, Chaz, with whom I have worked at, at one of the majors for a few years. Uh, we became good friends, and he's agreed to come on and, and chat with us about how he became a naval aviator and some of the funny, incredible, scary, tragic, poignant, amazing things he's seen over the course of his career. So welcome, Chaz. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, thanks, Repeat, uh, Fig. Uh, first, it's an honor being here. So thank you guys so much Absolutely. for inviting yeah. me to do this. Um, I guess uh, to start off, I, I, I was thinking about it when you asked me to do this and trying to sum it all up as briefly as I could. And uh, turns out, of course, you know me, there's nothing brief, but uh, <laughs> I, I thought of a Dan Fogelberg song or uh, Dan Fogelberg has a song called The Run for the Roses about a Kentucky Derby, uh, yeah. Kentucky Derby winner. And there's a line in that song where he says it's the chance of a lifetime and a lifetime of chance. And that's lyric for my, and I love Dan Fogelberg. He, he was from Illinois. I grew up in Indiana. So, but when Dan said that, I really, that's always stuck with me because I think it describes my life. And, uh, and I suppose it describes all our lives, but uh, yeah, chance of a lifetime and a lifetime of chance. Um, I, I, to talk about my career as a aviator pilot, depending on whether you're Navy or the rest of the world. Um, I, uh, I basically, I, I, I didn't grow up in an aviation family. I didn't grow up with aviation interest. Uh, I didn't really know much about aviation. Um, I took my first flight in 1972, but prior to that, I was born in 53. So you can do the math, uh, 19. And, uh, but growing up, my dad was a railroader. So I grew up in a transportation family. He was an engineer on the Pennsylvania Railroad, later Conrail. Um, and he, he, my grandfather um, had a picture that hung in his workshop behind his rocking chair. And I have that picture today and it's my most dear possession that this house were to burn down. Besides getting my family and my pets out, the only thing I would have to get out is that picture. And that picture, you can go find it. It was off of a calendar from way back. And it's a steam engine coming down the tracks. And it was an air race. And right above it's a tri-motor at about 100 feet. And the two of them are just coming down the track. And every time as a little kid, I would go to my grandfather's. And he made a chair, which he built for me to have a place to sit when him and his, my dad would sit and have a whiskey and talk about life. 
I could always look over his shoulder and see that airplane above that steam engine. And I just know that's where the seed was planted. And like I said, that picture's in my family room and in my theater room right now. So uh, I was lucky The dad on the railroad, their tracks ran across our pasture where I grew up. We had a couple of acres east of Terre Haute and he had a special signal on his whistle that he would hit when he was bringing a freight train through and he'd slow down sometimes and let me go jump on the train and come up in the engine and he'd let me run the engine and run it That's to St. Awesome. Louis from Terre Haute <laughs> or turn around and go in the other way to Indianapolis where he started. He was the Southwest Division. And the other part of that, so I knew that he did these trips over and over where he got to go away and I'd hear stories about faraway places, St. Louis and Indianapolis. And, and to me, that was magical because I didn't grow up with a lot of money. So we didn't do a lot of travel. And uh, we went to see my mother's family in Arkansas. So I described myself as bilingual because I have family north and south of the Mason-Dixon <laughs> and uh, love them, love them all. That got me in a few fights on both sides over the years uh, as I protected images that people wanted to throw around. Right. But uh, I, uh, my dad also had played AAA with the Yankees and he became commissioner of baseball where I was at. So I, I got a lot of goodness out of him. He really was an amazing character. And when we take those train trips to St. Louis and I'd lay over with him at his layover hotel, we'd go to the Cardinals stadium. He'd show up and one of the guys he'd played with the Yankees was in the front office at the Cardinals. And he'd tell him, you know, Ori's here. And the guy would come get us and take us in. We'd go to Cardinals games. One time got to sit on the bench with uh, Julian Javier and Tim McCarver and Bob Gibson and, Stan Musial and, you know, for a kid that was 10, 11 years old, my dad was a god. Uh, and uh, it, it, it got me excited about travel. I thought that's what he did. The plane and thing. I had a junior high teacher who'd just come home from Vietnam, uh, Air Force enlisted guy, but he'd been a tonsinute. And he told me when I was in the ninth grade, uh, he was my homeroom teacher, and he told me one day we were talking, he goes, I think you'd make a great pilot. You got what it takes. And that stuck with me, too. It was in my head, you know. So those are the things that set me on the path. That's and, amazing, uh, Chuck. I mean, you know, it's like every little kid in America, though, right? You get to go run a, a locomotive and uh, sit on yeah, a right. bench and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> those are good that's, uh, that's magical. I yeah, I, I think it was. And then I, uh, like I said, I didn't have a lot of money and I was working my way through school and I started at Indiana State. Freshman year, I was pre-med. Uh, that was really my father's wish. He wanted me to be a dentist and he thought that was the best job in the world, being a dentist. And uh, turned out Chuck didn't think it was the best job in the world. My grade point average was not reflecting that I thought it was the greatest job in the world. And uh, through that year, I worked as a lab assistant in the microbiology lab, and I kept the reptile house for the university. And uh, But I knew at the end of that, that that wasn't going to work. And uh, that summer, I took a job at the A&P, the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company's factory in my hometown. And I did such wonderful things as offloading 140-pound bags of peanuts out of freight cars. I worked strapping beans, which is catching hot cans coming out of a canning machine and putting them in cast iron kettles so they can be retorted or sterilized. I, I ended up in uh, regrind, uh, taking the pasta that didn't turn out right, putting it into a big hammer mill and turning it back into powder so it could go back into more pasta. 
it's about 110, 115 degrees up in regrind, probably 120 decibels. You wore a headset, face mask because of the dust, the flower. I liked it because no one came around. And uh, while I was doing <laughs> that, the turning point in my life occurred because I was about to drop out of school. I, uh, I wasn't doing too good and I wasn't too fired up about it. And I was making real money for the first time in my life. I worked in a print shop in high school uh, at a dollar an hour. Uh, making, you know, serious cash. Prior to that, I'd had a paper out. But now, now, man, I was making three twenty six an hour at the factory. Dude. And so to me, yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. And uh, my buddies and I were all doing that. Of course, we'd we'd smuggle a little vodka in and mix it in with the high C uh, juice that they were making there. And then uh, go up on the roof on our breaks and have a, you know, have a moment. So it was wonderful. And I decided I'm going to drop out of school and pursue this high paying uh, career at the factory. And uh, so I shared that one day with the guy there that I really respected. He was the forklift operator. And uh, he'd been there since World War II. He came home from the war, took the job. And so I shared, you know, that I think I'm going to drop out of school and I'm going to come out of here and get after it. And this guy kind of pushes back from, oh yeah, it was beautiful. He pushes back from the table. And he goes, uh, yeah, you don't look that stupid. And I go, sir. <laughs> and he goes, uh, he goes, uh, let me tell you something. Let me tell you about this place. He goes, I came here after World War II. And he said, I worked down there on the docks and worked in the warehouse. And he said, then that machine that you think is so wonderful that I'm driving, that forklift came along. And he said, that forklift, every one of those forklifts put 16 men out of work. He goes, that's the future of this factory. He goes, there ain't a job out here that a machine isn't going to be doing one of these days. So don't think you're going to have a career in this factory. It won't be here in 10 years. And you know what? That stuck. <laughs> but you know, the other thing that's even more important, he was 100% correct. That factory, the building is still standing, but it has not been a factory you know, since the uh, 1980s. So wow. uh, he called the shot. Well, about that time, aviation enters my life. I went to the county fair. They had a drag strip next to the county fairgrounds and they had a Cessna over there on the drag strip giving airplane rides for $5. And they go up and fly around the pattern and come back and land. And so I thought, well, hell, I got $5. I'm making all this good money down there at the factory. I can do this. And so I ran down there and bought myself a $5 ticket and went and climbed in a Cessna 150. Notice I said 150, not 152. So this right. is this. And uh, we did a pattern, a loop, and the guy flying it, I think, saw I was interested. And so we did another loop around the pattern there and landed. And he gave me a card, said, if you're interested in doing this, you know, give us a call. And uh, I got pretty fired up about it. And I ended up leaving the factory and I took a job as a bellman in a hotel. And um, hotel, motel, let's be, let's be honest. It was a motel. <laughs> and... Uh, and um, I went back to school, not sure what I was going to do, but I thought, you know, I think I'll run out to that airport and, uh, you know, take a flight, just see how this goes. And the airport was Sky King Airport uh, in Terre Haute. And it's a little, you know, 3000 foot strip in a uh, subdivision north of town. And uh, you guys are old enough to probably remember Sky King uh maybe not in real time but it was uh, it was a series on television yeah flew around in a cessna 310 right 
Yeah. 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 310, the songbird. And, uh, and it was kind of a Western. He was kind of a cop, sheriff, flew airplanes, had a sidekick daughter that were involved in every drama. And he'd track down bad guys from his airplane and, you know, or run, you know, go rescue horses or children. And, you know, it was that kind of stuff. Well, anyway, Sky King Airport was Sky King Airport uh, because the actor who played Sky King was a guy named Kirby Grant. Uh, Kirby Grant's wife was married to a guy named Herman Brown. Herman Brown was the proprietor of the FBO at Sky King Airport. So that's the connection <laughs> to Sky King. Kirby Grant would fly the Songbird in there a few times a year to come visit his sister. So I got to meet him, you know, got to climb in the Songbird uh, for a kid. Oh, my God. You know, I mean, this was, you know, celebrity and airplanes and all of it. And uh, that was very, very cool. And uh, sadly for Kirby, uh, it ultimately didn't end real good. Uh, he was invited uh to the challenger's last successful launch uh, to be honored for his contributions to aviation because he inspired a lot of people you know, to pursue aviation. Right. And he got killed in a car crash on the way over crossing Florida. Uh, I think it was up in like 86. Wow. Uh, but uh, anyway, Sky, Sky King Airport and uh, Herman and Steve Brown, his son ran that operation. Herman, as I recall, had 40,000 hours of flight time. He learned to fly in a Jenny at a grass strip in the 1930s. Uh, I mean, just aviation history, walking. Yeah. Chuck, let's put that in perspective, 40,000 hours. You flew 34 years at a major. You had time in the Navy. Yep. Do you have 40,000 hours? I do not, my brother. I, I've got about 14,000, so <laughs> not yeah. even close. Yeah. <laughs> so 40,000 hours, you got to work at that. That, that's like work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got to work at that. I started flying 40 years ago this year. And I think I'm, I'm right over 12,000, mm -hmm. so, uh, but you don't get a lot of time in tactical aviation. You don't grab a lot of time. There's just no two ways about that. Yeah. I know. So, as we know, yes. Yeah. They, they run out of gas pretty quick. And uh, especially that thing you guys flew. I mean, it just, you know, it does unusual things. I mean, Airplanes yep. just aren't supposed to fly straight up and down unless they're on their tail or on their nose going that way. I, uh, right. you know, I don't get well, it. But It was a JP-8, the noise converter. It, yeah, it did it efficiently. Yeah. Made a lot of noise really fast, burning a lot of fuel to do it. <laughs> there you go, my brother. We'll get to that. We're going to do a lot of that here before we get done talking. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the Sky King Airport experience, I, when I thought back through it, there were a couple, you know, how we go through life learning lessons in aviation life, uh, but there were a couple there. I had one acquaintance, fellow student at ISU. He was CSI, you know, CFI out there. Um, he basically had a student who apparently was suffering severe depression and uh, turned out that this guy went out while they were doing uh, steep turns and he basically pulled him into a stall and spun him into the ground and killed them both. And I was about 20 when that happened and it was, pretty jarring uh god only knows for his family you know what it was uh but for me it was jarring and then shortly thereafter another acquaintance was training in a twin and they were doing engine out and uh you know engine out on takeoff and turning to come back and they feathered the wrong engine and they went down in the backyard of the houses adjacent to sky king airport took out a bunch of swing sets 
fortunately they didn't take any people out and fortunately both of them walked away so but those two things were my first wake-up call to hey this this stuff's serious it's got a serious business right yeah well it took me a while to kind of catch up to that but i think that was the first bow shots that bad things could happen and um other experiences right along in there that kind of were formative uh, one day, another flight student and myself uh, decided to take a 150 and fly up to a place in central Indiana. It was middle of winter. Uh, weather was overcast, but it wasn't supposed to be crazy. And we took off and started going, and the ceiling started dropping. We were at about 3,000. Next thing I know, we're down below 1,000. Ceiling still dropping, and now the snow comes. And, uh, you know, the great de-icing capability of the Cessna 150 uh, so the next thing is we have ice all over the uh, windshield, and that's seeming pretty serious. Uh, so we're looking at our charts, and we see a grass strip not so far away, so we're going to go for that. But by now, there's about six inches of snow on the ground, and we can't really see to identify the strip. We've got about 50 knots of wind coming out of the north. Fortunately, the strip was north-south. So we went across looking for it. We knew it was close to a highway. And... Uh, we saw, we saw what we thought was it. So we turned around and came the other way now with 50 knots of tailwind and we went blasting past it pretty fast, what seemed fast in those days. <laughs> and uh, we turned around and came back and set up for an approach and landing and, and hoping that what we saw was the runway. Uh, we came in and we're dropping down and all at once, we couldn't see out the front so we had the side windows open. We're peeking our head out the window to see, which was not particularly fun with driving snow and cold weather. And uh, all at once, he's going, pull up, pull up, pull up. And there was high power lines in front of us. So I pulled up, the stall horn goes off. We go in slow motion over the high power lines. I don't know what we cleared them by, maybe 10 feet. And came over them and I lowered the nose to accelerate out. And I saw an opening between... Uh, rows of apple trees and growing up in that area I know that between apple trees is nice smooth ground so um, I landed the airplane in the apple orchard and uh, rolled to a stop it was right at dusk and we're sitting out there on the ground in the snow in the apple orchard the two of us look at each other and just burst out laughing like holy moly can you believe that you know one of those things next thing is we see a light coming through the dark and it's the farmer's wife coming out to see what just happened in the orchard. This sounds like the making of a dirty joke, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does, right? <laughs> she came out, invited us into the house. Uh, we went up to the house. We called back to the FBO and said, we're safe. The airplane's safe. Uh, here's where we are, but I don't think we can get out of here until the storm passes, which we didn't. So we ended up staying uh, with the farmer. Well, it turned out he wasn't just a farmer. Turns out he did have a strip. It was just adjacent to the orchard, but it was covered by snow, so I didn't see it. And it turned out that this guy did restorations on Howard's. And he also was the first guy to bring American trainers into Indiana. So he had American trainers. So I started flying with him too and got to fly his Howard's and got to fly the American trainer with him. So it turned out to be a really good thing. Worked out well, lived to tell the tale. Lesson learned, yeah. uh, winter weather. Uh, without the icing can be hazardous to your health. So, uh, so that, that was a light airplane tale from the crypt. And then, uh, well, well hold, hold on, hold on, Chaz. I got a question for you. Yeah. How long did that airplane sit in the apple orchard? Two days. 
<laughs> nice. Okay. Did he tow it over to the strip or did you get take it off where it was? Yes, he did. No, he got it. He brought his tractor and he had a, a you know, he picked up the nose gear with a thing on his tractor and drove us over to the uh, to the strip and he plowed the strip so we could take off. So it was, nice. it was pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. So, uh, yeah, that was that was my first personal brush with something uh, bad that could have happened, but didn't. So somehow we pulled it off. The guy that was with me, I wish I still knew where he was, whatever. He was a great guy. And the first of uh, many, many, many great people that my aviation career put me in contact with. And one of the things when I retired, I found out I missed more than anything was the people. Uh, you know, it's just a, it's a fraternity that's right amazing and it started back there and you guys know that i know that and uh one of the other tales i guess from the crypt uh back there before we get on to the military and i have to tell this because my best friend he was pretty fired up about all this flying business and uh he was going to go in the navy with me he he was going to go in as an nfo and turned out his life turned a different direction and he didn't do that but at this point, when I was first flying and just got my private, and I had, I think, about a whopping uh, 45 or 50 hours when this story takes place, you know, so I was highly experienced. High time. And, High time. Uh, yeah, yeah, big time. So we did a hundred miler, uh, flew over to Decatur, Illinois, where his sister lived, and went and had dinner with his sister because I needed to get some night hours. So we were waiting for the sun to go down. But as we looked off to the west, we saw a lot of lightning. And uh, turns out, you know, there was a big line coming. And so I thought the better part of Valor is uh, we need to get out of here now. And so uh, sis runs us back to the airport. We jump in, fire it up, and we take off for that, you know, long distance, 100 miler uh, back home. One little aspect of weather that I hadn't yet picked up because I just began my uh, aviation degree search at the university was that a lot of times uh, when you have a fast moving cold front, uh, it will, in fact, set up, uh, what do they call them, Pete? Squall lines? Is that what it is? Squall lines? Yeah. Gets <laughs> yeah. a little breezy and, out uh, in front of so that weather. <laughs> yeah. And so the squall line established between Decatur and Terre Haute. So as we take off and head that way, the next thing I know, I'm seeing lightning in front of us, too. And now we got lightning behind us, which is more ominous lightning in front of us, and the ceiling's coming down. And so then the rain hits. Then we're in severe rain, lightning severe turbulence we're down at about 800 feet to stay below it all and i don't know which way to go because i'm really confused by this new weather development so we call the flight service station in Terre Haute and say hey we need help and uh these guys i knew them because by that time i i had shifted jobs and i was pumping gas at the airport so i go up there and drink coffee with them they were both old bomber crew members from world war ii they basically looked at their radars and all and on the radio talked me through these storms, found the gaps, gave me headings, turns. We got through it, went and landed. And my buddy, uh, I'm trying to think if he ever flew with me again after that. I don't know <laughs> that he ever did. <laughs> I just... oh! so, so that, <laughs> that kind of summed up uh, most of the experience back in that world with, with one thing that I will also add because it's about a person in our industry and profession who was pretty important. Uh, later in life, I uh, got involved in union uh, work and leadership. And when that happened, uh, my um, counterpart on the company side, the senior vice president of flight uh, was also an Indiana State 
university graduate, fellow Hoosier. Uh, he also left the university, went to the Navy when I, we were about a year apart there. He, he was a year younger than me. We didn't know each other then. He left the Navy, ended up at Eastern, ultimately ended up at and, uh, and then uh, I basically, you know, left there and um, I went to Pasture Carrier at the same time and also ended up doing the cargo gig. So, um, so that, that, that individual uh, later in life when I was doing union things was amazingly helpful to the pilots at my carrier and his ability to make things happen and listen and collaborate. And it was truly a, a remarkable thing. And, and I still trace it back to those early roots with the uh, fighting sycamores. So, and that's another thing. Think about that for a second, you guys, sycamores that fight. Most people don't even know what that is, except the Wizard of Oz thing, you know. So right. <laughs> no, and, and and I do recall that uh, uh, you know things were pretty rough at one point. It, it, and when he got into some serious leadership positions, uh, they they significantly improved. It was he stopped the attitude of the beatings will continue until morale improves, and actually tried to listen and and engage and affected some change course no one can affect all the change and, and as as pilots we're never happy unless we're complaining right i mean if amen my brother <laughs> well you got that right <laughs> that was kind of the lead-in and to what's to follow and uh, so i got started with the flying and all that i realized pretty quickly this is expensive uh my tip money from the uh hotel uh, I'd save my tips to like buy another hour of flight time. Now, back in those days, an hour of flight time was, you know, like $15. So it was, you know, I don't know what the inflation calculation is, but you know, it was there. Well, let me tell you this. This is part of the reason I actually wound up buying an airplane. It was my, I promised right. my daughter with good grades, she could get her, uh, her grades were terrible. Her fr freshman and sophomore year. So I said, bring me good grades your junior year and I will let you get your private ticket between your junior and your senior year outstanding and i like to say i should have promised her something cheap like a pony because it, <laughs> it was too know, let me tell you having had a lot of ponies they aren't cheap they don't call heroin horse for no reason <laughs> it, it, exactly right so no it's uh, out at the, our local airport 200 an hour for a wet 172 and that's probably oh, going up yeah. because of that so, yeah boy oh yeah. boy yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. But anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted. So you're out flying with tip money. Yeah. Well, I was trying to get the money and then I found out I could get hired pumping gas at the airport and they give you a 10% discount on your rentals. Uh, so I did the math and that seemed to work out better than my tip money. Uh, so I did switch over. Ultimately, you know, there at um, ISU, when it got down to senior year, I didn't have the ratings. I just didn't have the money. I, I needed a multi-engine, a commercial, an instrument to get the professional flight rating. Mm -hmm. I had about 100 hours, uh, you know, at that point. So it wasn't going to happen. I went and talked to my counselor. Uh, the university was very gracious. Uh, I had to take a couple of classes, but they would let me shift my major to general industrial technology and still get my degree. At that point, they did know I was had intentions to go to the military. You know, we're trying, uh, but now let's jump to the military. Um, 
So that sophomore year, when I first got out Sky King and started flying and realized this is pretty cool. I think I'd like to do this, but I was also realizing it's also expensive and I don't know that I can do it. And then one day I'm walking across campus and there's this, uh, I think they were these old GMC uh, RVs, recruiting, recruit mobiles. Uh, but he had a poster. This is how you make major career decisions. Uh, he had a poster and it was a poster of this guy. It was kind of a done in a dark gray tones. And this guy was sitting in the cockpit of an F4 Phantom. And he's looking up over the, the windscreen into the camera. He's got a black helmet on. He's got a Fu Manchu mustache. And you know how popular those were in the Marine Corps, Pete. Oh, so yeah. he's got a Fu Manchu. So we know this was a very realistic picture and, and looked like, you know, the baddest awesome. ass of badasses. <laughs> and I saw that poster and went, yeah, yeah, man, I want to be that guy, you know? So uh, nice. I immediately went to this guy and said, what, what's the take? How do you, how do I get to be that guy? And he goes, well, you know, we'll take some, test and see how you do and if you do well you might have to take some more tests and then a physical and all that goes well you know needs to the service you know we'll get you in there and i'm like well yeah let's do it you know when do we start he goes oh we can start right now just you know climb up in here and i'll give you the test so uh sure enough i crawled in and wrote out my test and a couple of months go by, maybe not that long, I don't remember clearly, but a while goes by, I get a call from him, he goes, you want to do some more tests? Um, yeah, that'd be cool. So uh, this time I had to go over to Indianapolis to the recruiting district, and uh, so I drove over and did some more tests. And another period of time goes by, and he calls back and goes, uh, hey, how about a physical? I go, yeah, he says, well, you're going to have to go up to Chicago for the physical. And I'm like, okay. He goes, well, we'll get you up there. So this becomes my first time ever to get on a large airplane was the flight to Chicago. And uh, so I, I go up to Chicago to Glen, Glenview and uh, go to the Marine detachment. Funny things on that trip were I get into O'Hare, go to the military desk. They're arranging transport out to the air station. And this Colonel, Marine Colonel comes, they were waiting for him to arrive. So I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. The colonel finally arrives. They throw me into the car with this colonel. And we're both sitting in the back seat. And so here's young Chuck, whose hair at this point is uh, at shoulder length and uh, sitting with the colonel. The colonel isn't even looking at me. He just sits ramrod straight, staring straight ahead the entire drive to the air station. Has not said a word to me <laughs> the entire drive. Kind of intimidating. And uh, I'm like, well, yeah, it reminds me of you, Pete. You know, I mean, I've seen your Marine thing, you know. <laughs> and uh, Was that Colonel an aviator, Chaz? Do you remember? Did he have wings? No, he did not. Okay. That's why he didn't have a sense. The reason why his story matters is we get to the front gate and there were Marine you know, guards on the front gate. And, of course, they motioned the car through. They did not salute. And, of course, it was not a car that was marked as I know for them to right. know, but they should have seen the Colonel in the back seat. And anyway, he immediately leans up, taps the driver, goes, stop the vehicle. And I'm sitting there going, what? what? He jumps out of the car and he runs back and has the guards doing push-ups at the gate. And I'm sitting there watching that going, wow. All right. Now we're getting <laughs> somewhere. And uh, so then I go in do my physical. I'm up there for a couple of days. They, they made it into kind of a cool thing. And they had P2V Neptune 
reserve squadron there. I don't know if you guys remember the P2V Neptune, but it had propellers and jets <laughs> and it had turbines and props. And, uh, but anyway, they did submarine patrol in the great uh, Lake Michigan uh, from their base in Chicago. They invited me to go for a flight with them. So I got to go out at night, and ride in the jump seat and this P2V patrolling for submarines in Lake Michigan. Uh, and which seemed mostly like uh, an opportunity to tell jokes uh, for everybody. And then when we flew back in, that thing had like a 2 million candle power searchlight on the wingtip that you could control from the cockpit. So we flew back into Chicago at 200 feet, flew over the hood on the way back to the base and used their searchlight to uh, search the streets of Chicago as, as we returned. And I'm like, okay this looks like fun. I think I need to do this. And uh, so there, that led me ultimately to being a PLC uh, for the Corps. And that's the, uh, so for everybody, that's the, it's called platoon leaders course or platoon leaders class. And that's what uh, Marine, that's Marine Corps officer candidate school that, uh, that one goes through so they can get commissioned after college sorry for the interruption Joe. now it, and it was a good deal because they gave you a stipend while you were in schools and my money thing kind of you know that appealed to me there was some cash involved uh so i thought that would be great uh there was a hook to the cash however because if you washed out of flight school grab your rifle you know you're gonna go three you're you know you, you and as you may recall if you're drawing the timeline here we had this little thing going on over in southeast asia and I kind of grown up watching the news and yeah. that idea of running around out there uh, with a rifle, that didn't look all that appealing. Didn't I look mean, like that was uh, a fun. Yeah. <laughs> no, not so much. No, no. I, I, I thought that it really seemed like the downside of this whole thing, but uh, a short time thereafter, moving on to the Navy story, a uh, Navy recruiter was parked out on that road with his recruit mobile. And I went over and started talking to him, told him I was PLC and everything. It turned out he was a super nice guy. Uh, he, uh, he had just gotten home from Southeast Asia, from Tonkin Gulf. Uh, he had flown uh, A-4s and uh, uh, he just was really one of the nicest people I think I've ever met. Genuine, funny, uh, and obviously sea stories. And uh, invited him to come to the fraternity house that night because we were having a party. And he agreed and he came down to the frat house and uh, you know helped us float a keg and uh and then through the evening we sat around and he started telling stories and oh my the stories the stories of low levels in southeast asia the stories of night bombing in hanoi the stories of seeing wingmen shot down the stories of being so low that he hit wires in the streets of the city. Uh, what? I could go on. Then he talked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're talking crazy stuff. And I heard those stories repeated later at my carrier by another guy who had the same experiences, which remind me to talk about later because they're amazing. But I heard all that and I was like, wow. Then he went on and talked about carrier ops and landing at night and the adrenaline and he basically said, it's more adrenaline than I even got in combat. It's just like this regular fix of it. He goes, it's the greatest thing in the world. And I'm just sitting there with, you know, with my eyes big and my mouth open, just going, wow. 
And the next, he spent the night at the frat house and the next day he got up to leave and he grabbed me and he goes, uh, I know something about you that you don't know. And I said, yes, sir. What's that? And he goes, well, you're no Marine. And I go, what, sir? I go, yes, I am. I've already sworn in. I took a little offense at that. And he goes, that's not what I mean. He says, you just got too much adventure in your soul. You need to be on a ship seeing the world. And he said, and you need to fly on carriers at night. You know, that's what you need to be doing. And I thought, well, I, I'd love to do those things, but you know, I already, I already gave him a word the other way. And he goes, well, what if I could change that? And I said, well, if you could change that, I'd certainly consider it because this sounds pretty darn cool what you're describing. Well, a couple of months go by, I get a call. He goes, well, you're in the Navy now. And I go, sir. And he goes, you need to come over and get sworn in to make it official, but you're in the Navy now. And he says, you owe me. And I go, well, yes, sir. I know I owe you. He says, no, you don't. He said, you owe me two bottles of fine scotch because that's what this cost. And I went, okay, that's a fair trade. Two bottles of scotch for career. So yeah, we can do that. So that's how I ended up in the Navy. Became an Avrock, which Pete, I don't know. You can explain. A- Aviation Reserve Officer Candidate School, is it? Yeah, and it was... It was a good deal. You didn't get money. I lost cash stipend, uh, but you did get time in service while you were in school, which was pretty cool. So later on, I understood what that meant. I got more pay. So, and, yeah. and what's really weird about that is the guys like at the academy, because they were getting their school paid for, did not get time in service. So here's me in the frat house at ISU getting time in service. And these guys that are actually doing it, not getting it. I'm not sure that was all fair, but anyway, I was happy to take the money. And, uh, and so I, the, the Avrock thing played out 74. I got sent to my first round of OCS. They did eight weeks, Pensacola. Um, and then you come back after your senior year, do eight more weeks and then go up to softly field and start. Uh, that first summer was interesting. Um, summer, obviously eight weeks, Pensacola, you start off in Poopyville as you guys know, and that's the Chrome dome world. You get to wear your silver helmet and your full green flight suit and hundred degree, hundred percent humidity weather. Think of the movie, an officer and a gentleman without any of the glamor, liberty, or fun thrown in. Amen. My brother, amen. My brother, let me add a couple of elements to that experience uh, because it's worth adding. Uh, first week they were processing you in there and you got to do the thing. Everybody's seen in movies where you're all lined up in your undershorts uh, down at the medical clinic and you're going down the line and they're jabbing you, giving you all your vaccines and all your shots and everything. And so we're going through there and they got the air gun, you know, shooting you in the shoulder with your shots. Uh, well, they injected my class, uh, several of us, myself included with live smallpox. Uh, so the smallpox vaccine was made from dead smallpox, but, uh, apparently this one got live smallpox. They forgot to put it through the microwave before they put it in you, huh? Apparently. Uh, so five of us ended up in ICU. Uh, later that night, I was in the upper bunk in my room with my roommate, and I kind of had crazy fever. It turned out it was 105 and oh, went into convulsions, yeah. fell out of the bed onto the floor. By the time the uh, by the time the corpsman got down to me, they'd already hauled out about a dozen guys. Uh, they threw me on a stretcher out into the ambulance, out to the hospital. Uh, I get down there and, uh, for, I don't have much memory of the next couple of days, pretty delirious in and out of it. They packed me on a table in ice, uh, to try and bring the fever down. 
Uh, finally, I got the fever down enough. They moved me to the, this is the best part of the tale, moved me to the infectious disease ward, uh, which was a big long room, like out of the movies where there's about 20 beds up and down each side. And, uh, and this is in the pre-air conditioning world. So the windows are all open. And uh, of course the mosquitoes and are getting through the screens and things like that. But uh, I just remember being there feeling pretty rough and uh, they bring your tray of food and I'd sit there and watch the flies uh, come land on my food. And then I'd look around the room at all these guys that were in there. Most of them were vets from uh, Vietnam uh, who were suffering all manner of diseases. And, uh, and I kept thinking about the flies and I go, I bet they were just on that guy's food over there. I mean, wonder what they just brought over here. And I can just remember sitting there watching the flies going, uh, this is not good, but it was a beautiful military uh, hospital where you had to get out of your bed, even though you were sick every morning and make your bed. So the nurse could come inspect your bed and your nightstand to make sure oh you gosh. had every, no articles adrift. And, uh, I was in there oh four gosh. or five days and then got pulled back to the battalion. And they didn't drop us back a class. They moved us right into it. And on we went. Wow. Then I ran into my first real snag, um, swimming. I thought I was a good swimmer. I was a scuba diver. I really did. I thought I could swim. I had a sailboat that I'd bought with my senior high school graduation money, probably the only sailboat uh, on a reservoir in Indiana. I really thought I was a water dog. But for some reason... Chaz's body uh, does not do frog kicks. It's just not in my mental wiring and physical makeup, apparently. So I could not qualify in the breaststroke because I could not do a frog kick. I kept scissor kicking. So I got sent to stupid swim. <laughs> no offense to stupid, but you know, it was stupid swim. That's what they called it. Stupid swim meant when everybody else went to lunch, you had to grab your swim gear, run to the swim tank, jump in and try to learn how to do a frog kick. And the guy that ran the swim tank, old UDT guy, uh, he had a real long cane pole and he would walk along the side of the tank while you were trying to frog kick. And every time you did the kick wrong, he'd jab you with the cane pole <laughs> and uh, frog kick, frog kick. <laughs> anyway, long story short, I ultimately did develop a passable frog kick and my career uh, continued. So uh, thanks to him. I don't remember his name, but I do remember his cane pole. That was a motivator. Motivation. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it was good. It was very motivating. So I made it through that. I went home. This is 74 now. Think of the timeline. And uh, at that point, there were 150. 10 or so of us in that Ivorock class, in those battalions there, a huge class. It was because the war was, you know, sucking up a lot of aviators. And so they were doing it. But what had happened just prior to 74, that war had ended in 73. And all at once, the military hadn't adjusted to the new reality. So as soon as I got home, I received a letter said, oh, by the way, you got three choices. You can come in and go surface warfare. You can get out and never come back. Or you can go in active reserve. And if we ever need aviators again and we find you physically qualified, you can come back and do it again. I didn't really think surface warfare was my thing. I didn't want to get out and never come back. So I went inactive. A couple of years later, they did call me back. Thank God. 
In that meantime, I worked for Columbia Records as a production control uh, accounting clerk in a factory where they made 78% of all the vinyl albums in the world. Wow. And most people of that era will remember the Columbia Tape and Record Club for sure. 99 cents. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, that was that. Was that. And then you're a member for life. <laughs> yeah, member for life. <laughs> but I met my first wife during that period and uh, my life then took a different course. And those were rough. Uh, that was a rough period because I didn't know if the Navy was going to come back. I really didn't think I had enough money to pull off the flight thing on my own. I kind of was given up on it. And uh, I can remember being pretty down, you know, through that period, except for meeting this lady and, you know, that part of life, but everything else, not so grand. So anyway, uh, got through all that and I got graduated and all that. Like I said, the gen tech thing, I did uh, have an interesting experience there that kind of ties into aviation. When I got, I had to go back and change my major. They put me as a teaching assistant to a professor there in the technology school and I taught hydraulics and I taught uh, auto mechanics and uh, auto systems. And, but the professor had an idea and I've always wondered if anything would ever come of this. He, he talked about piezoelectric crystals and in a, in a recording stylus for old LPs that needle vibrates against a piezoelectric crystal and that vibration puts off an electrical sig signal and an amplifier grabs that signal and turns it into the sound you hear when you play. So I knew what a piezoelectric crystal was he had an idea of making a piezoelectric polymer that he could build the foundation of homes out of and that the gravity would apply the pressure to the crystal and you could just plug the house into the foundation and power it. And I thought that's the most mind that was blew, blew my mind that this guy had this idea and he spent his whole life as a professor researching and trying to develop it. So I, I don't know where that idea ever ended up. Obviously, we don't have our homes plugged into our foundations, but but I just remember that. It's so cool. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, finished, you know, got called back ultimately, 76, uh, finished OCS, um, off to softly T-34 at Bravo, the mentor, uh, the Bonanza with a T-tail and an inverted flight tank. And, uh, and you know, tandem seating so uh that was fortuitous because i had enough flight airplane time that flying it was not uh, particularly challenging uh the hard part was remembering all the voice calls and all the uh, you know that stuff and and only real vivid memory <laughs> yeah procedures you know those testy things yeah. uh, only real vivid memory i have from that was one day we took off out of softly and looked out across the scambia bay and there were six water spouts out on the bay there was some weather obviously out there and i'd never seen a water spout uh, and i'm in the front seat flying and i'm over here just gawking at the uh, water spouts wow you know that's something and about that moment i got whacked in the back of my helmet where he grabbed his kneeboard and smacked me <laughs> he goes your job's to pay attention to airplanes not water spouts now get busy <laughs> like yes sir and uh, anyway I, I recall that um then off to Kingsville, uh, Jets, T2s and A4s ultimately. Um, An area near and dear to your heart, Fig. Uh, yeah. I thought Kingsville. I caught Yeah. Like, you yeah. got some of those scars? Yes, sir. <laughs> so He gave um, some too yeah. there. <laughs> I gave you scars. Oh, there. very good. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I don't, I don't have that call. But I get down there and um, there's a few memories from that 
era. Um, the first one, uh, which is, again, you're asked how I got to flying, how this all happened. I'm still in the how did this happen mode here. We'll get to what happened. <laughs> but uh, I did my first long cross country in the T2. And the instructor was a Marine, uh, super guy. I flew with him quite a bit. Uh, and uh, we're going to Almogordo, New Mexico, and uh, from Kingsville. And so we're up at, you know, 35 or whatever, you know, cruising, cruising across. And I'm up in the front seat. And uh, I look out there, and I'll, once I see these things coming up in the distance, mountains, uh, Chuck had never seen a mountain in his life. Uh, he had seen the Ozarks, but and no offense to my family in Arkansas, mountains were a little out. So I mountains. really had never, them aren't mountains. I, now I'm watching these mountains come at me from whatever the horizon was. And as we're flying toward them, they're starting to stand out. And I'm realizing them's pretty big. I made a comment under my breath, of course, you're flying with hot mic, oxygen mask on, all that. And he heard me and he goes, what's that? I go, uh, oh, nothing, sir. And he goes, oh, what'd you say? And I go, oh, just mountains, sir. He goes, right, Rocky Mountains. And then he thought about it for a second. And he comes back and he goes, you never seen the Rocky Mountains? And I go, no, sir, never seen a mountain. And he goes, you want to see them better? And I go, <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, I do. And, uh, he goes, uh, call center and ask for a descent. And uh, so we descend, come down out of the PCA and get below 18. And he goes, call center and cancel our IFR. And I go, yes, sir. And then he goes, uh, I cancel IFR. And he goes, I got the aircraft. Rolls inverted pulls. Next thing, we're diving toward the desert floor somewhere out north of Roswell, as I recall. And uh, you remember the regs on altitudes, as I recall, I think the floor was supposed to be 200 foot the daytime. That one sticks in my brain. Um, anyway, on this particular day, I think the regs were modified somewhat. And uh, I think it was more like 30 feet, maybe. Well, you know, whatever it takes, train like you fight. <laughs> yeah. And I was sitting in the front seat, just enjoying the view that this is coming very fast and it's very dramatic and hey, isn't that mountain looking pretty big up there? And we go zorching up, he goes into a canyon, follows it up, rolls the birded, pulls over the ridge, down the canyon behind, over another ridge, rolls the birded, pulls down, train following through the mountains, pulling G's, yanking and banking. I'm in the front just getting tossed around going, holy moly. Finally comes over the last ridge, we're coming down the last valley toward White Sands and there's a couple of pinnacles of rock down in the bottom sticking out and he comes down and just pulls a bunch of G and goes shooting through the rocks, snaps the jet back to level and goes, your aircraft now land. And I'm like, oh, that went well. Into the break, down we land. And I can remember the thought in my mind at that moment, after I, the terror of having to land settled in, I just went going, man, I made me a good career decision. Please teach me how to do that because that's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> And, and, and they did, and that was cool. And I know you guys know that. And I, and I think this is the part where we have a hard time creating a, a connection with the rest of the world because it's pretty hard for people that haven't done things like that to really grasp no. the power and the majesty of that. Well, my best way of putting it in, in some sort of perspective is the few times I've driven out west 
I've noticed that, for instance, if you come through a mountain pass on a highway and you see the valley in front of you and another mountain range out in front of you, you wind up getting there somewhere between 45 minutes in, depending on where you are, 45 minutes to two hours later. And in a tactical yeah. jet, you come over the mountains. Uh, like you say, you roll inverted, you pull, you're a few feet off the deck. And then you, you come down and you settle down at 480, 540, 600 knots. And you're at that next mountain range somewhere between 30 and 45 seconds. It's just yeah. so many miles yeah. per minute. Yeah. And it, yeah, if you haven't done it, it is, it's, uh, it's mind boggling. Once you've gotten to do it, there's nothing else like it in the world. No. And that's a true, that's as true as it gets right there. I mean, this is the beginning of getting hooked on the adrenaline, on the speed, on the excitement. I struggle these days to find it. It lives in my BMW motorcycle. Uh, <laughs> that's where I go now to have those moments out here in the mountains. So, uh, I still look for it, even though I'm an old fart, I still find it's good to get a little juice every now and then. Yeah. I'm a lean, mean speed thingy. I apologize for the interruption at this point, but as we stated in the intro, the interview with Chaz is being split into two shows. He'll be back with us on next week's show as well, and we will certainly have him back in future shows. We appreciate that you're listening and all the follows and comments. You can follow us on Facebook at so there I was us slash Facebook or on Twitter at so there I was us slash Twitter. Please leave us any comments telling us what you like, what you don't like, or what you'd like to hear in a future show. If you're involved in aviation and have a good story to share, please reach out to us and we'll see about having you join us on a future show. Write to us at fig at so there I was dot us or repeat at so there I was dot us. Repeat spelled R E P E T E. In the meantime, check six.